you have a Bible, if you'd please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're starting a new series this morning. First of all, I want to I note a few things, a few housekeeping notes. First of all, you'll notice on the back of your bulletin, there's a place for you to write um, notes for your sermon, for my three points for my message. And I know some of you, not all of you, but some of you are like me. You, you, pay, it, you pay more attention when you're, when you're writing things down. Whether you're going to keep the bulletin or not, it helps you to focus. So I would just encourage all of you, some of you note takers, you're used to sort of going around the front of the bulletin, right, and, and getting very creative on, on where you're going to put your notes. I just wanted to point this out to everybody. Also, I um, want, want to, first of all, draw your attention to this graphic. Um, we're so blessed at this church. Uh, Austin Way created this graphic for us for this new series, and I want to explain what's behind the graphic. In the church in Corinth, you have all these amazing spiritual gifts. You have the gifts of tongues. You have healings. You have prophecy. And um, so the idea behind this graphic is Paul is thinking about the Corinthian church. He's thinking about all the gifts they've been given. He's writing notes, and then he says to himself, well, what's love got to do with it? He writes that, he kind of scribbles that note in the corner. And of course, Paul's answer is everything. Love has everything to do with it. And so, thinking about the Corinthian situation, he writes an entire chapter on this one subject of love, 1 Corinthians 13, which comes right in between the two chapters on the extraordinary spiritual gifts, chapters 12 and 14. Also want to say just one final thing. It's a challenge I've given myself. I'll give it to, to the flock here, to the congregation at Grace Redeemer Church. Memorizing scripture is not something that very many of us do anymore these days. It's certainly not something that's in vogue. And I've challenged myself to memorize this chapter of scripture. And I would challenge all of you to memorize this chapter of scripture. It's only 13 verses long. And uh, this isn't just a sentimental um, thoughts on love that we hear at weddings. All of us have heard this chapter at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. This isn't just a sentimental, though, Uh, description of love. This is one of the most profound insights into the character of love that you will find anywhere in all of Scripture. So that would be my challenge. Growth group leaders, what a great thing to lead your growth groups for this summer in setting out the challenge to memorize this chapter of Scripture. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts to bone and marrow, even to the heart, the spiritual heart, exposing our sin and our need of you and our need of grace. Lord, show us that our deepest need of all is your love to transform us, for us to receive your love and then overflow through the power of your spirit with that love to a world that needs it so badly. Lord, we ask for your help now. We pray that the words of my mouth And the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want to put a map up on the screen of Corinth, give you a little uh, description of this city that Paul is writing to. You'll notice Corinth, I put an orange X um, where, where you find it. It's only about 50 miles away from Athens. I mentioned this in a pastor's desk I wrote a few weeks ago. It wouldn't be a stretch to compare ancient Corinth to Las Vegas. Maybe another modern city we might compare it to would be Dubai. Um, Corinth was a wealthy, high-flying, 
uh, important city in the ancient world. It was a significant trade route. And, uh, you know, if they had a tagline to, for their tourist industry, a pretty good one would have been what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, okay? That would have, that would have fit fine for, for this city. Um, from the 5th century BC, so f- even 500 years before Jesus, uh, onward, the expression to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. So this was a wealthy city. They were known for their sexual sin. It was just like Sin City in many ways, um, just a a previous iteration. And uh, what happens is Paul goes to Corinth, called by God. He establishes a church. The gospel saves people like it does wherever the gospel goes. Paul leaves to go and start new churches, as he's called to do as a missionary and evangelist. And various problems arise in the Corinthian church. You've all heard of dysfunctional families. Well, the church is a family, and of course, all families are dysfunctional on on some level, but the Corinthian church was a dysfunctional family. There were factions that had arisen. They were confused about a lot of issues. If you have your Bible and you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 11. Paul says this, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? So that sets a little context for our study through this book and through this chapter of Scripture. You have a divided church that is confused about a lot of things, and they are especially... um, obsessed with with these supernatural gifts of of tongues and prophecies and healings. And next week, we are going to look at the gift of tongues. And the only promise I'm going to give you is that I'm not going to speak in tongues. That's the only thing I'll give you. At least I don't think. Um, That's next week. But they are into the spiritual gifts. And to give you a bit of a picture of what the church was like, I want to compare it to... um, give you the metaphor of reality TV. First of all, our three points for this morning are this. Reality TV before reality TV, sinful people are still gifted people, and what sinful gifted people need most is love. First of all, this idea of reality TV before reality TV. Um, For better or worse, and I'm pretty convinced that the answer is worse, we live in the era of reality TV, right? Um, do you guys remember the first reality TV show you watched? I feel like it was Survivor, maybe, or maybe some of you, you know, The Bachelor, you know, but you don't want to raise your hand um, all the way. Uh, we, we live in the world of reality TV, and um, unbelievably, someone could become our president who was on reality TV. And, um, you know, the, the, the ironic thing about reality TV is it's supposed to be real, and yet it's really fake. Some of you may not know how reality TV works, but let me, let me explain it to you. What reality TV is, they, they, they have their plot, they have their, um, you know, whatever the show is about, dating or relationships or a competition or whatever, and the producers of the show, uh, they're really like directors for a movie, they have literally hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours of film to go through. And then they pick the five seconds here that they want, and they pick the 10 seconds here of the fight between two people or whatever, or the, uh, you know, the illicit kiss here or whatever, and they create the drama that they want the viewer to see. Ironically, reality TV is incredibly fake and contrived. I think it glorifies the worst things about human nature, um, the petty fighting 
and uh, there's something that's that's almost has a um, a voyeuristic nature to it about reality TV. And, um, you know, if a producer were to look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and if, and if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, a, a television producer might say, uh, for reality, reality TV, jackpot. Man, I have, I have never had material as good as this. I've got the name of the show. We'll call it Keeping Up with the Corinthians. And uh, we've, got, we've got so much good, juicy, salacious, page six New York Post material here. I mean, we are going to kill it in the ratings every single week. And the truth is, there was a lot of salacious, juicy sin going on in the church in Corinth. That's true. If you read this book, there were rivalries. There was bad behavior at the Lord's table. Let me give you, um, explain that. Uh, you know, the truth is potlucks are really uh, a very old tradition. In fact, potlucks go all the way back to the early church. I don't know if you knew that. So uh, potlucks is one of our most uh, famous, uh, longstanding traditions in the church. And um, you, know, you know what a potluck is. You, every, everybody comes together, brings food. And so what the early church would do is they didn't have a facility. We're praying for a facility here at our church. I hope you're praying for that. Uh, but imagine in the early church, they had no facility. They just met in homes. So what the early church would do is they would, the believers would gather in a home for a worship service, and literally they would have an actual meal. You would have dinner together or lunch together, and then they would celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But there was a few things going on that shouldn't have been going on. One is people were getting toasted at the Lord's Supper. That's not generally what you want when you take communion. You generally don't want the person passing the bread to you to be inebriated at that moment. So you had drunkenness going on at the table. But that probably wasn't even the worst sin that was going on when these Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper. You see, what was going on is in the church you had the poor and you also had those who were well off. And what they would do is each person, now remember, this is a long time ago, you didn't have food available everywhere. Um, What each person would do is they would bring the food for them and for their family. And if you were poor in those days, maybe the food that you brought was just, you know, some old bread or, or, or very little. And what Paul says is when they came together, the rich um, wouldn't share their prime rib. They wouldn't share their filet mignon. They would enjoy a, a, a beautiful feast of good food and the poor would be ashamed and they would be embarrassed and they would eat the, the, the meager food that they could afford. And then they would take the Lord's Supper together. And Paul says, do you see how wrong that is? That, that the Lord's Supper means you're remembering the death of Jesus and that you're one body and yet you have the rich and, and those who are well off and you're, you're embarrassing. You're embarrassing those who are poor by not sharing out of the means that you've been given. That's not the right way to take the supper. So you do have salacious sins going on in the church like drunkenness at the table, not sharing factions. There's, a, there's an instance of incest even that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, on the reality, uh, uh, excuse me, on the surface, you got a great reality show here for the, for the church in Corinth. And yet I want us to be careful about this. What is it about reality TV for all of us, myself included, has some kind of grip on us sometimes where we're interested. It catches our attention. The 15-second clip of the fight or the scandal or the person embarrassing themselves, something makes us want to tune in. Something makes us want to watch. The producers know this, of course. They know how to get ratings. 
And there are really two reasons, I think, that we take pleasure in the sins of others. Two reasons, maybe more, uh, beyond simply entertainment. One reason that we enjoy the the sins of others is self-righteousness. We say to ourselves, I'm glad I'm not like those people. You know, we can watch someone, we can watch somebody on TV whose life is a mess and it's being caught on camera, or, or we can compare ourselves to our neighbor and we can say, you know what, maybe I have my problems, but at least I'm not like that person. And instead of examining our own hearts, what are we doing? We are looking at somebody else, we are playing comparison, and few things Few things breed self-righteousness like comparison because you can always find somebody worse than you in pretty much any area of life. Hitler could have blamed Goebbels for his sin. He could have said, he's worse than me. There's always somebody that we can find and we can compare ourselves to and say, at least I'm not like that person. Maybe overall or at least in this one area of life, self-righteousness. There's another thing though that I think many of us can relate to, which is, Another reason we enjoy the sins of others is that we are secretly indulging and enjoying sin from afar. In other words, just watching. Hey, I'm not actually committing the sin. I'm not actually doing the sin. I'm just watching the sin or reading the sin, reading about the sin or whatever. I'm just observing sin, but for whatever reason, maybe it's fear of getting caught or, or maybe it's that you know deep down that you're not supposed to do it, but there's still that tug in your heart to do the sin we still indulge a sin from a distance. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? As we go into this study of of love, in the context of the Corinthian church, let's remember, brothers and sisters, that we need to look at our own hearts first and foremost. It's easy to read this book and to say, wow, what a messed up place that was. They needed a whole chapter on love. I mean, maybe I just need two or three verses. But those Corinthians, that was some salacious, juicy, wicked, evil stuff going on. And it can be easy for us to distance ourselves from sin and to, and to distance ourselves from the remedy for sin, which is the love of God manifested in Christ. Reality TV before reality TV. Secondly, sinful people are still gifted people. I mentioned that Um, There's a lot of juicy sin going on in the church in Corinth, but you need to understand this. Paul is not writing to, uh, to people who don't know Jesus. Paul assumes his audience knows Christ, and not only that, Paul assumes that the church in Corinth is a church that has been given many, many gifts. In fact, listen to how Paul describes the church in Corinth. In Again, I'm in chapter one, and I'm reading verses five to seven. Paul says this, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now listen to this, what he says in verse 7. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Were the Corinthians sinners? Yes. Were they people who had been given gifts of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Are we sinners? Yes. Have we been given gifts of the Holy Spirit? Yes, we have as well. Paul is writing to sinful people who nonetheless have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with gifts meant to build up the body. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that you've been gifted by God? Do you know that if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, God has given you the greatest gift, the pearl beyond price, which is eternal life, but he's also gifted you for this life now. 
I want to bring up a chart that, um, that we have on our screen here of the various spiritual gifts. Paul has two different lists that he gives in Corinthians of the various spiritual gifts. We're going to sit here for a minute. Uh, look at these gifts. One of the first things you may note when you, when you look at a list like this is you may note right off the ba- top, of, you know, top of your head, you might say, well, um, a lot of those things, it, it doesn't, I don't feel like I can relate to those things. Apostles, I'm not an apostle. At least I don't know of anybody who says they're an apostle. Um, I'm not a prophet. Miracles and healing, I don't even know what to make of that right now, pastors. That, does that stuff still happen today? Um, uh, prophecy, uh, evangelists. So, you know, maybe we look at a list like this and we say, I'm not sure how much I can relate to this. But take a, take a good look at this list. Can you relate to wisdom? James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask for wisdom and it will be given to him. What about knowledge? Do you know your Bible well? You know how to know your Bible better? It's to read it. It's to study it. It's to be in the word so that you can correctly handle the word of truth and so you can speak truth to your brothers and sisters. And if someone has an understanding of scripture that's not correct, you can lovingly say, actually, that's not what this means. What about faith? If you know Jesus, you have faith, but some people have, an ex- have, a, have a gift of faith where they're able to trust God in ways uh, that are just truly amazing, where they're able to trust God with their money and with their time and, and with their resources and with their children and their lives and their vocations, maybe in ways that some of us can't. We should pray for more faith. We should pray for the gift of faith. Some people have the gift of faith. What about helping? This is kind of one that nobody can sort of uh, wiggle out of. I'm not sure if I have the gift, gift of helping or service. I think gifts like uh, those of you who are musically gifted, um, those gifts fall under helping or service. How about the gift of giving? It's called a gift. Some of you have been given uh, uh, a special amount of resources, and the gift of giving comes with a delight in giving. You love to give to worthy causes. Um, of course, that doesn't mean the rest of us can, can wiggle. I don't have the gift of giving. <laughs> um, but the Bible says it's a gift too. So as we, as we look at a list like this, we should be able to say, or we should ask ourselves, what is your spiritual gift? Do you, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Um, all believers, all Christians, and we can move on here to the, to the next slide, all believers have been given spiritual gifts. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter doesn't say there's two kind of Christians. He doesn't say there's Christians who have been saved but have no spiritual gifts, and there's Christians who have been saved and have spiritual gifts. He says, rather, each of you should use whatever gift you have received why? To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. Let me mention a few other um, gifts that I think are in the New Testament. One is hospitality. We see this in, in 1 Peter 4, 9. Some of you, um, you, you have the gift of opening up your home and, and serving others and, and, and making especially newcomers feel welcome and, and building relationships. Maybe, maybe you don't feel comfortable leading a growth group, but you're willing to host a growth group intercession. Some of you are prayer warriors. You pray, you get down on your knees. Most people don't see that. Maybe you come to kingdom prayer or either on Sunday morning or on, on Tuesday nights. Then there's the gift of celibacy. That's, the, that, that's like the hot potato, right? Nobody wants to touch that one. 
Um, hey, I don't have the gift of celibacy. Um, but I think that it's a largely misunderstood gift. And I want to say this. It is possible to honor Jesus by being sexually pure and not being, when you're not married, that is possible. We live in a world that basically says that's an old-fashioned, silly idea, and someone who would want to deny themselves sexually, come on, they're so repressed, that's not even possible. But the scriptures say that it is possible to live a life where a person is um, honoring God through purity and through sexual abstinence if they're not married. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the gift of celibacy. I just want to say a couple things. One is, there was a man who lived um, in the 20th century. His name was John Stott. Does anyone know John Stott? I would say after Billy Graham, John Stott probably had the biggest impact on broader evangelicalism than anybody else. Uh, I would so recommend John, any, any John Stott book. I don't even have to think about what the book is. Read a book by John Stott. John Stott was never married. And uh, his approach to the gift of celibacy is that God gives that gift Uh, not just one time in a person's life. So it's not like God just gives that gift and the person never struggles with anything again, but rather that God gives that gift as people need it. So it's my understanding that Stott at various times of his life wanted to be married, but God uh, never provided a spouse for him for whatever reasons, and yet God sustained him and continued to give him that gift of celibacy. I do think it's an uncommon gift, but the scriptures treat it as a gift. Do you know your gift? Does that question sound like a foreign language to you? I want to say something, and I mean it with with no sarcasm. No sarcasm aside here. All sarcasm aside. The scriptures never say that a believer is given the gift of coming to church for 75 minutes on a Sunday, and that's it. There's no 75-minute Sunday morning gift in the Bible. We need to know that. If we are truly going to use our spiritual gifts, and the the reason we've been given them is to edify one another, we need each other. I need your gifts. The Desch family needs your gifts. You need my gifts. We need each other's gifts. How are we supposed to fully exercise our gifts if we are only, the only involvement we have in church is coming up on, is coming on Sunday morning and being here for 75 minutes and 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 then nothing else touches our lives? And I say that, I know, I know it may seem easy for me to say that, um, but I, I say it out of love because God has given everyone gifts. He desires that we use our gifts to build up the body. Now you, say, you may say, well, pastor, look, I, I have gifts, but I, like, uh, I prefer to use my spiritual gifts outside of the church. Um, so, so some of you maybe have the gift of evangelism. You say, I, I, I like to use the gift of evangelism outside of the church. Amen, use the gift of evangelism. You should, you should share with your neighbors. But don't forget about this verse from Paul in Galatians. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now listen to what he says, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Especially those who belong to the family of believers. What Paul is saying is love everybody. Share, serve everybody, love everybody, but do good especially to your church family because you are a family. You're united. How are we supposed to serve one another? And I, I will freely acknowledge um, Sunday morning, this is the core of who we are coming together for worship. I'm simply saying there's more to the Christian life than this hour and 15 minutes where we come on Sunday mornings. 
you know, you may be, um, right now, you may feel guilty. And if it's from the Holy Spirit, then that's good if you feel guilt from the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to apologize for that. But it's easy to go from feeling guilty to then feeling condemnation. Well, I guess I'm not being a good Christian. But I want to challenge you with this. Instead of going from guilt to condemnation, go from guilt to anticipation. And here's how I want you to think about it. Right now, I'm coaching my son's baseball team. Okay, you can pray for me. Um, I just mean to set the lineup and, you know, make sure I put people in the right positions. That's all I'm saying. Um, No, yeah, there are challenges, right? I'm coaching a baseball team. They're 8 to 11-year-olds. I'm having a lot, truth be told, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm getting to know people in Teaneck. It's it's a great uh, opportunity for me. But um, if you've ever uh, coached little, uh, little League sports in any way, or just as a parent or, or even an aunt or uncle, you can relate to this. There is nothing that thrills us as a coach more than when a player does something correct on the field, okay? So let's say there's like this lame little ground ball that's hit to the pitcher and the pitcher fields and he throws it and it's actually an out. We go crazy like we just won the Powerball, all right? Me and the other coaches, we're, we're doing backflips and everything and because we're just so used to the mistakes happening, you know, the, you know, the ball getting thrown to second or, or somebody steals five bases or, you know, that's just what we're used to. And that's what you're used to in Little League. You're not used to, you're used to the strikeout. You're, but when a kid hits the ball well, or if somebody catches a pop-up, you go crazy. You love it. Why? Because we love it. We get enjoyment out of children playing the game the way it was meant to be played. Baseball is a lot more fun when you know what you're doing, all right? If the ball comes to you and you stand there and look at it, baseball is not a very fun game. But if you know what to do when the ball comes to you, if you know how to hit, if you know how to throw, if you know how to hit the cutoff man, whatever, the game becomes so much more enjoyable. Church, your Christian life will be enriched so much more when you're using the gifts that God has given you for the edification of the body. That's why he's given us these gifts. It's first of all to glorify his name, but second of all, to build up the body. And so my challenge again is to go from, not from, from a good godly sense of guilt to condemnation, but to go to anticipation and say, okay, Lord, where can I plug in and use my spiritual gifts in this place if you call this place your church home? Sinful people are still gifted people. Listen to Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians verse 7. He says this, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. He doesn't say to some. He doesn't say to the lucky ones, to the chosen ones. He says to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. God knew what He was doing when He saved you. And God knew what He was doing when He gave you spiritual gifts that He wants you to cultivate for His glory for the good of the body of Christ and also for your own growth and holiness as each of us learn to serve others. Final thing, what sinful gifted people need most is love. Um, I don't know uh, how many of you have heard of a a theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the early 1700s. Um, Talk about just a genius. I mean, this is one of these guys who would, you know, his his Saturday activity would be like, I'm going to write a book this Saturday and he would do it, you know. Um, Just one of these guys who's just a genius. And uh, his works are still read today. He wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits. And in the book, Charity and Its Fruits, he's pondering a question. This is his question. What makes the church like heaven? What makes the church like heaven? 
And in this book, he comes to this conclusion. What makes the church like heaven is one simple thing. It's love. The church is like heaven now because of love. Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians, he'll say the gifts are going to pass away. Tongues is going to pass away. Prophecy is going to pass away. Um, they used to say, one of my profs used to say in seminary, hey, pastors, don't get too big for your britches because you're, you're going to be out of a job in heaven, okay? Just remember that, all right? Jesus is the senior pastor. You're going to be out of your job in heaven. And that's a good reminder because the various gifts that we've been given, they will fade away. We should cultivate them, but they will fade away. But what's eternal? What will remain? It's love. It's love. Do you want to grow in love? That's what we're going to study this summer in 1 Corinthians 13. How do you grow in love? First, we have to be conquered by the matchless love of Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you know his love? Can you say in your heart, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me? Can you say that? Has that truth penetrated not just your, your mind, but your heart and transformed your life? Because the only thing that will truly enable any of us, myself included, to grow in love is to first have the love of Christ manifested in our own hearts. We've got to be transformed by the love of Jesus first in ourselves, and then we can grow in the character of love. Paul says it himself, he says, the love of Christ compels me. Now, if love is eternal, does that mean that we don't need to cultivate it? It's in, in one way, that would seem like it would contradict the idea of cultivating your spiritual gifts. Well, why should I use my spiritual gifts now? It's just going to fade away now. And the truth is, you actually manifest love by exercising your gifts. So one of my spiritual gifts is preaching and teaching. And I hope that I grow in that gift. But what matters is what is my motivation for doing it? Is my motivation love? Is my motivation building up the flock? If it is, then I'm actually growing in love by using my gift. And you know what? I, I will say this is a more of an upfront gift, um, but so many of you have so many gifts that aren't necessarily upfront, but they're just as important to the body of Christ. The hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. You know, one part of the body can't say to another part of the body, I don't need you. We, this church needs your gifts. And as you grow in love, as you exercise your gifts, you are actually growing in love. So yes, you should cultivate your spiritual gifts, but out of a motive of love. Last thing I want to say is this. Why should we grow in love? We should grow because this life is actually a dress rehearsal for heaven. Do you know that? This life right now that you are living is a dress rehearsal for heaven. There's a lot that we don't know about heaven. I don't know if there's going to be baseball in heaven. I hope there's going to be baseball in heaven. Um, maybe not the Yankees. And that's just because you can, you can take the boy out of the South, but you can't take the South out of the boy, as they say. Um, but there's a lot we don't know about heaven. Okay, we're given glimpses here and there. There's a lot we don't know. But what do we do know? Heaven will be a place of perfect love. Love in heaven will be the air that you breathe. Love will be the heartbeat of heaven. All, the, all these little fights, married couples that you have over stuff that's so dumb and doesn't matter anyway, it's done. 
All these time, parents, you yell at your children, you get upset with your kids about something, you're disappointed, your relationship with your children is not right. It's no more. All these physical struggles, those of you who, who have uh, a physical ailment or a sickness or a disease, it's gone. All the relational uh, strife that we have now in broken relationships, and some of you are estranged with a family member even right now as I speak, it's done. All of these personal battles that you're having with a sin or with an addiction and you fight and then it comes back and it's, it's gone. All that stuff is no more. No more crying, no more pain, no more tears. Only love. That's something worth amening. That's something worth looking forward to. The heartbeat of heaven will be love. And so for the next eight weeks... We are looking at the most excellent way, which is love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, we praise you for, first of all, that you have loved us. Your love is first. We love because you first loved us. Lord, would you cultivate love in us first for you and then like a cup that's overflowing, love for others. Lord, this is a body of sinful but gifted people here, myself included. Would we exercise our gifts out of love for the edification of the body and for the glory of your name? Lord, we need you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.